So if we can go ahead and turn to that passage, it's 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 14. Let's go ahead and stand and let's read the passages together. So Paul just basically says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share this rule with you. For I think that God has established, has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. But I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You can be seated. Really uplifting scriptures there, huh? This is something about the book of Corinthians, that uh, it's a ragged book. It's like taking down strong medication. Uh, The truths on here are just as valid as when we read these lofty, wonderful words in Ephesians, Colossians, other parts of the scripture where there's really wonderful truths coming out. This just hits us home. And I'd like to look first uh, at a verse Brian, Pastor Brian did last week, which was Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, because it, it, it helps give context what Paul is saying starting in verse uh, 6. So uh, let's go ahead and read that, because he's describing him, themselves as apostles and yet servants. So he says in, in verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, the word servant there in the Greek is different than most of the time. Uh, is translated a slave or servant. And I'm not going to pronounce the Greek word. It doesn't make any difference anyway, does it really? But uh, the word there means an assistant servant versus a mere slave of that day. And then he uses the word steward, which was a servant who managed the house or estate of a master and gave account to the owner. So Paul was saying that I am like a servant that is functioning as a free man under his master and lord, but had been given a management or stewardship over part of his master's household. And though Paul says I'm really nothing in myself later on, he also had authority given to him by God and within God's household. So we look at this as being a structural oversight. Apostles had the most responsibility of any leaders, 
And yet Paul says later in, in these verses that he really is the least. So there's a tension there. So I, I want to take a, just a minute and look at uh, the structural organization through God's viewpoint by looking further on in this letter to the Corinthians in uh, chapter 12. And so when you turn to that, or you can read the slide up here, remember something about structure. Now, when we talk about structure in the church, structure of leadership, it's not like it's a, a CEO company or anything really in this world because that's based on power, money, position seeking, uh, rather than a place of being a servant and a slave of all. So it's really important to understand because really, if you read the scriptures, um, the idea of the Godhead is really a structural organization. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And really, Jesus was constantly saying that I am under the Father and that the Holy Spirit is, is, is shown as being under the authority of Jesus. And so, but there's no lack of equality, but there is a structural organization within the process. So in this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, as Paul's describing his ministry and stewardship, he says, now you, meaning the Corinthian believers, as well as us sitting in this room here, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, gifts of healings, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And so, the idea of being first is a structural position. In fact, if, if you really want to just look from it today as I'm teaching, I would probably come third in that list. There's apostles in this world, there are prophets, there's evangelists, there's you know, pastor teachers, people that do helps and administration and so forth and so on. But there is a structural organization to it. Now, we shouldn't be scared by that. We shouldn't look at as, and, and there's lots of abuse within, a, within structures in the church, well aware of that. And certainly, if any of you have gone through that, you know the pain of that. But we have to draw this distinction that Paul's drawing so that we can understand where he's coming from. So, because he, he was being denigrated by the Corinthian believers, uh, even though he had fathered them in the faith. And that wasn't right. It wasn't right in God's sight, and Paul wants to point this out. So as we go through these verses, 6 through 14, we're going to be hitting some of these, what I call, divine tensions, where you have two truths that seem to be in opposition to each other, and yet they're expressed in Scripture, and we're called to hold them in a balance. And so we'll, we'll touch on these a little bit. So let's look at a couple of these uh, tensions here on this slide here, and one of them being Jesus. He is the exalted Son of God. Clearly calls himself that. Clearly is shown by that, by the Father, and yet he's the lowly Son of Man. The issue of judgment, which is brought up here. Um, Paul is calling the Corinthian believers to make discerning decisions on people and events versus not condemning and passing final judgment. We're challenged with those two truths held in tension. Uh, one of the other things we'll look at a little bit is disciples, uh, the disciples' posture in Christ. We see an elevation of us as believers, but we also see the, the aspect of humility and meekness and being a servant of all. And finally, uh, we'll look at authentic leadership, as I mentioned, appointed structural oversight and, and yet servant of all, the least. So 
Um, let's go ahead and look at again at verse 6. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn in us and from us the meaning of saying, Don't go beyond what is written. Then you won't be puffed up as being a follower of one of us over against the other. And so it's important to understand what he's talking about, is that he doesn't want the Corinthian believers to go beyond what God has said about leadership and structure and about what it is to be an authentic leader and what it is to be the least and yet have a place of position. So basically Paul is saying here about himself as, uh, as Apollos and himself and other leaders that they are, the Corinthians are to see Christ himself in them, leading them, and that by learning in them not to go what is written in the Scripture. First of all, it implies that the Corinthians, as well as us, are reading and knowing what God writes about himself and leaders. I pray that you read the Scriptures regularly. I pray that you read and understand what God has to say about himself and what God has to say about leaders in general and other things. Um, God lays out in Scripture what leaders are and what they're not, very clearly, on how they function as representatives of God in this life, because God defines attitudes and actions that are to be exemplified by leaders. And so it's important that we understand what those are and we follow accordingly. Paul was saying to them that they were puffed up, they were inflated, having unhealthy judgments versus being discerning believers about their leaders. Maybe, maybe they loved the person's appearance, or maybe they had a lot of skill at business and marketing, and so they were great on being able to draw crowds. Uh, maybe they were really funny or good storytellers. They were entertaining. But rather, Paul is saying through there, and none of that happens today, so I know it doesn't have any association to today. But rather, Paul is saying through their example that leaders should be discerned by the content of their message and how they conduct themselves in their lifestyles. In other words, how do they live life rather than some outward presentation? Mm, that's a tough one. And maybe even the Corinthians' preference on what they wanted in a leader. Remember in those chapters in the back uh, when we went through in chapter 1, one would say, I am of Apollos. One said, I'm of, Pro, uh, of Peter. One, I'm uh, of Paul. And, and really, the most spiritual believers, of course, said, well, I don't follow anybody. I just follow Jesus, and I don't need anybody else. But really, the main issue was this pride, an inflated pride that had image rather than substance. So I'm going to give a pictorial analogy of this. These are what Paul is saying the Corinthian believers were in right there. What's this mostly made up of? Air. Oh, man. Good, I found it. thought somebody had taken it. You know what happens, don't you? Not much left there, is it? You get the point. Yes, I know, I know. I'm allowed that. I'm 65. I'm a grandfather. I can make those kinds of jokes. But really, that's an illustration 
that image over substance is really crucial to the Corinthians and certainly to us in our culture today. It's really crucial that we understand that. So moving on to the next verse in verse 7, Paul asks a number of questions. He says, for who makes you different or superior than anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Different or superior? Hmm. The Corinthians were so image-centered that their particular leader was seen that they loved and wanted to promote above another leader, was higher than other leaders, because they felt that it made them different than the rest of believers, made them feel superior because they had a better leader. Not too different from today's denominations, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Protestant, and I hold the truth. Really, we really need to turn a light and examine ourselves about this, just like Paul did to the Corinthians here. It's really important that we understand how we view leaders and how we view who we're under and how we work within the context of a body. Because really, this little body of believers here that we call Calvary Slow is really a small part of a larger thing called the body of Christ, the church around the world. And so we really need to see ourselves in that larger context rather than the things that the Corinthians were dealing with here. Really, the only difference that we really can measure with true accuracy is when Christ Jesus changes me from the inside out and that we grow up in maturity, and we grow up in love and become really a servant of all, that's when a difference is really noticed, and it really has life and effect in us. So we need to ask this question. Second question Paul asks, well, what do you have that you did not receive? Because of the different factions within the Corinthian church, and possibly because they met in different house churches which made up the larger body of the church at Corinth, Paul is really pointing out that definitely they were not originators or discoverers of truth here, but had been recipients of others bringing it into them. They were basically saying, the Corinthians, I have this giftedness or great ability or abundance of possessions through my hard work or my great understanding because I've done extensive readings and I sat under great teaching. They had forgotten that God in his grace had given out his truth and accomplishment by his rich gifts through men like Paul and Apollos and other leaders appointed by God. Another important point that we understand. And the third question is, well, if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Now, Honestly, it, 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 there's a healthy sense that we need to always have that when we, have a, a, when we accomplish something, there's a healthy sense of, wow, that's, that's a great accomplishment. Or reaching a personal goal or dream and finally realizing it, it can be like a tree of life. It really has substance for us. So this is not what we're talking about here. Okay? It's really important that we understand because we have to be thoughtful whether or not we're really proud in our own human endeavors or what we have attained because it becomes a temptation to us. So the question to the Corinthians as well as us is, did I do it on my own? 
or through my cooperation of God did he do it through me and in me. You know, sometimes even without our cooperation, God does these things, which is an amazing, wonderful thing about our Father. There really can be us in us a crushing drive uh, to be recognized, honored. The need to be seen as a man or woman of position. And then because of that need, we might find ourselves aligning ourselves with those who, quote, have it made and have figured it out, unquote. Whatever that means, <laughs> really. So we, we really need to have this balanced, thoughtful approach in between two tensions again. And be able to have that and down the middle with this process. Now, Paul takes this thought process a little bit further in the next verses, and this is where we begin to have some issues with Scripture. So let's read it and look at how he's saying. He's saying, you're rich. You have all you want. You rule like kings. You're so wise and so strong. You are held in such high honor. Is that sarcasm? Is that snarky? Absolutely it is. <laughs> but it really brings up a question is, can this really be God speaking through this Apostle Paul? Surely Paul is probably just angry and he's venting his anger and being snarky. So I think it's really important that we really ask did God ever use this kind of language in other parts of Scripture to speak to his people? Because it's one thing to be sarcastic or snarky for snarky's sake. Glad I made that through. I didn't do that good in the first service. Which means, really, we want to destroy someone and then in the process make ourselves feel or look good by doing that. But how does God use it in the Scripture, and does God use it in the Scripture? First thing I just want to draw your attention to is maybe a phrase that if you've read the Gospels, Jesus would say a number of times, have you not read to a group of people or an individual? And usually it was to those leaders whose power rested on their, quote, superior knowledge, unquote, of God's heart, of, God, of Scripture, but not really knowing God's heart or his true intentions. They thought they knew and so we're offended by Jesus' sarcastic questions. Jesus used this language to reveal the heart. Read Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is one scathing comment after another against religious leaders who had no understanding of God's heart or his intentions or his power. I mean, this is not meek, mild, lovely Jesus here. So if your impression of who Jesus is is only that, then you're missing out on the true Lord Jesus. Kind of like this message this morning. It's very... And yet, we need to hear both sides of this. Let's look at the next slide here in Luke 13. At that time, some Pharisees said to Jesus, get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Now, first of all, the Pharisees 
weren't healing people. They were putting burdens on people. Secondly, they weren't driving out demons. Jesus was. The kingdom of God was coming through the Savior to deliver people and free them. And certainly the Pharisees were jealous about that. So this was a sarcastic indictment to them. But also, look what he says about Antipas, who was a ruling political figure during that time. He uses that word, go tell that fox. Now, in the Greek, this is a feminine form that he uses to talk about Herod, which means literally a vixen. Not very complimentary to a powerful political leader. Again, Jesus is using sarcasm and biting commentary. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, God would speak through the prophets with very hard language. In Amos 4, he addresses rich socialite women who oppressed the poor, crushed the needy, and were constantly wanting to get drunk. Do you know what he calls them? Cows. <laughs> Read it. It really does say that. That's pretty scathing. That's pretty harsh. Let's look at this passage in, in Jeremiah 12, or Jeremiah 2, I'm sorry. This is what he says about his people, his own people. You're like a wild donkey sniffing the wind at mating time. Any of you ever had a dog that's in heat? Or a male dog that smells something in heat? Wow, hardly complimentary. Israel, he says, is like a thief who feels shame only when he gets caught. They, their kings, officials, priests, and prophets, all are alike in this. To an image carved from a piece of wood, they say, you're my father. To an idol chiseled from a block of stone, they say, you're my mother. They turn their backs on me, being God, but in times of trouble, they cry out to me, come and save us. So God says, why not call on these gods that you've made? When trouble comes, let them save you, if they can. For you have as many gods as there are towns in Judah. Read the whole chapter, Jeremiah 2. Tell me that God isn't using sarcasm and scathing words. But the question has to be, well then, why does the Lord do this? One of the things I believe is that He's using cutting statements like a surgeon uses a scalpel to cut out a tumor that would kill in hope that his people would turn and be healed. Now, there's other reasons, but sometimes the Lord has to use harshness to bring salvation, to bring life, and he has no problem doing that. So it's important that we're conformed by the whole picture of who God is, what Jesus is really like in fullness. And again, today is a hard message. So hopefully that helps give a little more context as to, you know, Paul's not just venting his spleen on them, but he's literally using something that God has used throughout Scripture. So let's go back to that passage in Corinthians where Paul is addressing another particular attitude that was very prevalent in the Corinthians as well as, you know, in the church today. You can see in the next slide here in these verses covered, it's a word called triumphalism. And it's an attitude of feeling or feeling of victory or superiority, such as an attitude that one's religious creed is superior to all others, 
or a smug or boastful pride in the success or dominance of one's nation or ideology over others. Not true today, is that? You can laugh a little if you want. It's okay. It's, it's, it's really a biting statement about our nation, about ourselves, that we have to be so thoughtful and so careful because it's a misapplication of a believer's position in Christ, number one. Because in the scriptures, God speaks about us as sons and daughters in an elevated place in Christ. It speaks of us of having a future where we will be reigning and ruling with him. But on the other hand, it also speaks in the scriptures about humility and meekness and dying to self and being the servant of all. And so we have, again, this tension between two truths that we have to balance out and work with. And so the Corinthians were dealing with this also. And so not only did they have a misapplication of their position as believers, but also there's a, another contributing factor to this, and this would be uh, this attitude that through the influence of local philosophy of the day, something that we struggle with also in our society. In fact, the Stoics for centuries had used specific terms like rich, being satiated or full, and king to describe someone who was a high philosophical man, one who had learned to be independent and self-sufficient through being wise. And so because of the pride and complacency of the Corinthian believers, they rejoiced in their own wisdom and their own understanding and the supposed power that it gave them. They also despised Paul because he did not speak eloquently like so many teachers did. He suffered a lot, and who kept emphasizing the crucifixion of Jesus in weakness. In fact, in the later statements, Paul says, I worked with my own two hands, which was, to the Greek thinking, absolutely scandalous. That if you were a popular teacher, if you were a wise philosopher, you would be able to gather around yourself men and women who would support you. And if you couldn't gather these people to support you, you were a failure. And so you can see why they viewed Paul as weak and not good speaker, and yet they were judging erroneously. They didn't have right judgment about Paul. In fact, as, as, as Paul points them to Jesus to give them the right balance between these two, because in Jesus, if anyone had a reason to be triumphant, to demand worship and honor, and had the right to be a ruler, it would be Jesus as king. But Jesus knew why he came the first time. He knew he, who he was in the Father's heart and in his eyes. He knew what his mission was, and he had delegated authority that he exhibited daily. But he also made himself of no reputation. Others did but he did never sought his own glory. In fact, he said, all my glory comes from my dad, from my father. He was humble, lowly. He certainly didn't live the rich life, did he? He was crucified as a criminal, though he was saving the whole world through himself. But then he was exalted in resurrection. And when he does come again, he will indeed reign as king and lord over this earth. So, in the final verses that we're going to cover, 
the rest of the passages here, Paul's going to describe what true apostleship and true authentic leadership looks like in following Jesus. So let's read that passage in 4.9. God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade. Condemned to die, we have become a spectacle to the entire world. Now, maybe you've watched old Roman movies, or maybe you know this, but when the conquering generals who would do the wars for Rome, which was the governing authority over the Corinthians, is that when they would come into Rome with their, with their spoils and with everything into the cheers of the crowd, you would first see the general riding on his chariot. And secondly, you'd see all his victorious troops coming. And then thirdly, you'd see all the the spoils of war, the, the riches, the slave, you know, the, the, the money, all the pageantry. And then last would be the slaves who would be condemned to die, maybe in the arena, and they would be the very last. In fact, Paul says here that we have become a spectacle to the entire world. The word spectacle is where we get, get our word theater. And so they were on a stage before men and angels, and really being the last. Let's go to the next verse. Now, Paul here is exemplifying a really powerful spiritual weapon. It's the power of vulnerability. He's revealing himself to this group of believers of how he thinks and feels and what he's experienced. And it's really a risky action to take, but it also reveals what it's like to be in right relationship to God as a leader. He says, we're fools for Christ's sake. We're weak. We're dishonored. To the present hour, we hunger. We're thirsty. We're poorly dressed. We're buffeted. We're homeless. Wow, homeless. What does that mean? Most of us maybe don't have a context for what that's like. We labor working with our own hands. Again, that passage. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we implore. And we have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Again, up against that comment I made earlier about 1 Corinthians 12, that the apostles came first and that he had the true mark of an apostle. So where does that leave leaders like you and I behind Paul if that's how he saw himself? That's a hard question. Because I, 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 and I, and again, I'm just going to be really bluntly honest here. Today, in, in many of our American churches, how do leaders portray themselves? How do people want them to be? How do they lift them up? What do they do? Are we built up inside with true substance from knowing God and knowing Jesus, experiencing him? Are we just like these, I can't even find them, not much left, huh? These puffed up balloons here. You think that balloon's going to pop? I think it's already been going on. And really to the detriment of the church and the defaming of the name of Jesus and certainly to the detriment of many people who love God who are turned away by such hypocrisy. 
There's another hard truth here, because if you don't happen to see yourself as a leader with a title, I've got some good news for you. You may not have a title over your name. You may simply lead your family, or maybe be a leader among your roommates or at work. We all lead by example, and we always show what's inside of us. Jesus was really clear when he said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. And so each one of you are a leader in your own right where you're at. And so this covers you too. It definitely does. And we need to be thoughtful about that. They're hard questions, aren't they? And I'll be honest. I mean, I, I, I battle these areas myself. I, I love to be respected. I don't like anybody to think badly about me. I love the fact my life is comfortable, for the most part. And I despise the place of need in my life. I, I just, I run from that. I try to avoid that, and yet, that's not where God leads me. So I battle this attitude, and I trust that Jesus in me is going to win the fight for me. I'm going to learn to be content in all circumstances and follow him, no matter what the road's like, because I believe that he's able to get me and you where we can't go. I really do believe that. So I'm just being just transparent, I guess. I'm just being bluntly honest. I mean, <laughs> look at Paul's resume. Would you want to hire this guy as your leader? He's been run out of many towns. He's accused of starting riots, only occasionally supported by the people he serves. He's arrested and imprisoned a number of times. He has a physical disability. When was the last time you saw a senior pastor in a wheelchair leading a congregation. I never have, personally. What does that say? Would we hire a man like Paul here to lead in the face of Christ? Well, let's look at the last verse here. What's God say about Paul? Look at his attitude. He says, I'm not writing these things to shame you. He didn't say all these, you know, he wasn't doing this to bring a shame that would just lay on them and cause them to feel like, I can't get away from this. He's warning them. He's imploring them. He's, he's exhorting them as beloved children whom he had birthed himself. Whether or not we would be squeamish about hiring Paul, God truly had appointed Paul to do just that, to be a leader and a father. He had birthed them into Christ and now warns them as little children. He truly had authority and an appointment from God, and he was carrying it out to the best he could, while at the same time suffering as he did that, suffering from abuse from the Corinthians here to suffering all kinds of want and need, and yet was faithful to the stewardship that God had given to him. He was an authentic leader. And it's a model for me, for others, for all of us here in the room. So I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And I think it's important that as we, let's go ahead and stand also. As we kind of respond to the Lord in more worship, we're going to take communion here.
fact, if we can have the people that are going to serve communion come on up. I think we need to really take these passages to heart. We need to let them examine us. And as we take communion, which is really a symbol of great need here, because it symbolizes these implements, uh, symbolize his body and his blood, which is our very life, that without him, we are nothing. We're lost. And so as we take communion, I encourage you to, to be thinking about what God's speaking to us about.